Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in our country's armed forces. On this series, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and experiences. We'll talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector and we'll discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton here with you on Veteran Voices. Welcome back to the show. On this program, we dive into a variety of topics impacting our veteran community. Today's show, we've got an outstanding opportunity to talk with and get to know better a veteran that just recently retired and is transitioning into the private sector. So stay tuned for that. Not only are we going to learn more about his background, but we're going to learn more about what transition can look like in 2020. A quick programming note. If you like what you hear here uh, today, go check out our podcast. You can find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. This podcast is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, and you can learn more about that at SupplyChainNowRadio.com. All right, I want to welcome in, with no further ado, our featured guest here today, Theodore Turner, recent retiree from the U.S. Army, and Theodore goes by Ted. So, Ted Turner, how you doing, sir? I'm doing good, doing good. It's a hot day in North Carolina, but I'm doing good. Hey, I, I'm with you. It's a hot day in the metro Atlanta area. It looks like we might get a little more rain, though. But, hey, it's been good to connect with you. I think we met through Vets, Vets 2 Industry, I believe, and, and some of our mutual friends there. Great to get to know you earlier and really honored to have you on the show here to really get to know you a little bit better, but also share you with our audience and share your experiences and your insights with our audience. So great to see you in person today. Thank you. Thank you. And I guess this is the digital version of in person in 2020, Ted, right? This is it. This is the best it gets. This is the uh, FaceTime of the future. That's right. <laughs> All right. So for starters, and by the way, congrats on your official retirement, which I think was 1 June 2020, right? Yes. And you separate on the 1st of September, is that right? It's 1st September when I get issued that infamous blue ID card. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, and you were just telling me before we went live here that uh, you've got facial hair for the first time in 20 years, right? First time. I couldn't grow it while I was in because it just went long enough, and then now uh, this is the first I've seen myself with a beard since I joined the military. <laughs> <laughs> it feels all different. That means, as we talked about, that means your transition must be going well. So, all right. So, Ted, uh, I've got a leg up on our audience because we've had a chance to, to talk beforehand, and, and I've had a chance to get to know you a little bit better. But let's do the same for our audience. So, for starters, you know, tell us you know, where you're from and give us a, give us a story or two you know, from your upbringing. I'm born and raised in, in Atlanta. I grew up on um, the west side of, of the ATL. I grew up right outside Turner Field. So since 92, I watched every Braves game that came, every World Series. I'm a, I'm a, if it got Georgia in front of it, that's my team. I ask, <laughs> win, lose, or draw. I'm a, I'm a big Georgia fan, Atlanta fan, no matter what it is. If it come out of the state of Georgia, that's my team. Love that. Raised by a single parent, so I'm the oldest of five. I have a lot going on here being a single father. <laughs> so you said you were the oldest of five, is that right? Yes, I'm the oldest of five. So I'm the, I'm the one that everybody looks to for advice and everything. 
I'm the one that everybody uh, wants attention from. Yes. Let <laughs> me just transition to my office. <laughs> so the oldest of five, and all five, did you say were raised by a single single parent? Yes, raised by my mom. Single mom, okay. very strong, independent woman. Very strong, independent woman. Yep. She makes everything worth doing. Uh, I joined the military was to get out of Atlanta and to just do better for yourself, uh, travel the world, serve the country, and be a role model for all my little brothers and sisters. So we're talking about what made you join the military, kind of as we segued a little bit. Was the was it going to be the Army, and that was going to be your number one choice, or did you ever think about the other branches? Actually, the military wasn't even my first thought. I wanted to go to Georgia Tech because I wanted to be an engineer. And then talking to my recruiter, we had a recruiter came to our school every single day. So talking to him, they say he did his job. He's very convincing. <laughs> they ended up joining the military, got the college money, got the GI Bill, and it ended up being, being good. I was going to only do three years, but I ain't, uh, once you got in, 9-11 happened, and I ended up staying forever. You uh, were a chief warrant officer, CW2, I guess, in the Army when you retired. And so clearly, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have to earn a degree in order to become that, that officer, right? Not for the warrant officers. So for your regular officers, we call them O-grade officers. The lieutenants, captains, major generals, yep. they have to have a degree before they join. Okay. For the warrant officer, you have to do some enlisted time. Ah. So I made it through the rank of uh, from private to the rank of sergeant first class, E7. I did that in my first eight years of military. Eight years? Yes. Then That's I, um, quick. Which is unheard of for my MOS, which at that time was a wheel mechanic. So I came up through the ranks. I did a little drill sergeant time, and at, once I finished my drill sergeant time, I switched over to be a warrant officer because I wanted to stay in my field of managing equipment, managing people, and stay close to the troops. As a regular O-grade officer, you don't get to stay close to the troops unless you're a commander. Mm. You're not a commander. You're all over the place. So I, I'm showing a little bit of my Air Force ignorance because we, don't, we didn't have warrant officers in the Air Force, and I was enlisted. Air Force is the only branch that don't have them. Marines, Army, and well, Navy has a chief, but it's not the same chief. <laughs> so we were—you're saying the Air Force was missing out. So, so you're filling in the gap for me because I, I wasn't sure about some of the differences, some of the requirements. And so, if we can go back for a second, so your MOS was a what? What was your MOS again? So I started as a 63 Bravo, which was a light wheel mechanic. Yep, that's the person that fixes everything from your bits in my trucks down to your. Uh, Ride lawnmowers. Okay. They changed that in 2003 to a 91 Bravo, which you fix everything from a tank down to your riding lawnmowers. Once I switched over to one officer, I became a 915 Alpha, which is just an automotive technician. So you fix on everything short of an aircraft. If it, if, it, if, it, if it touches the ground, that includes generators, trailers. Sometimes you have to deal with weapons and, and, and uh, night vision, but you touch everything except the aircraft. You also mentioned to you went from E1 to E7 in eight years yes. uh, in, a, in an MOS that you, you mentioned that it's, it's, it's next impossible to, to be a, a fast burner like that. Yeah, normally it takes 14 years to uh, make E7 in, in MOS. So we're going to talk about accomplishments in a minute, and clearly that's one, and we're going to get the story behind that. If I could clarify for a second, in that, as you were describing the differences between enlisted and the warrant officers and the O-grade officers, the traditional commissioned officers, is it true that not only 
could you do the work and, and have that that high technical mechanical aptitude but you also managed a lot of the work taking place did you do both of that as in, in your final role yes so you covered because what you have in that uh, enlisted background and me i had to see enlisted background and what you have in the now being a warrant officer you're, you're now a uh, such a matter expert at your current field you can cover down so there's really no gap so not only are you in the weeds you're also the person that's telling the, the obrey officer this is what you go tell to the boss this is what you go tell to the colonel or general because you're the face we make things happen they normally, they normally call warrant officers uh, silent professionals silent professionals yes really the whole goal is to get the work done and not not look for credit not look mm. for uh accolades you just making sure that um everybody come home everybody everybody everything's done safe one last question again and and because this is a gap for me learning about the warrant officer segment of the military so it, your first eight years you retired after 20 right yes okay so your first eight years were enlisted and your last 12 was as a warrant officer or, or how did that work so my first 12 was enlisted i didn't switch over to a warrant until i hit 12 years in Okay. And gotcha. then from there, I uh, switched over. As so my last eight years was uh, a warrant officer. Okay. All right. All right. So let's move to some of your favorite accomplishments. I mean, clearly, I mean, I've, I can already cherry pick a few, and I can already make a few assumptions based on our couple of conversations. But what do you think? I mean, for starters, let's let's go to the eight year from E one to E seven. I mean, what were some of the accomplishments that fueled that meteoric rise? But one, I said I had good leadership. I have, I've been every unit I've been in, starting out at 101st, which is in Kentucky, moving to Germany. I, I was in Elvis O unit, 501st. Every unit I went to, I've had good leadership. Uh, my first, first 10 years of the military was deployment, so I went to Iraq five times. In those five times, I trained the Iraqi Army, where we, I lived with them for a year. You and 12 other soldiers, and the rest of the base is just uh, Iraqi Army. You're teaching them how to be a it's basically like a Iraqi drill sergeant, if that makes sense. Mm. And it all helps because things that people in my MOS couldn't get to do. Because normally in my MOS, you're in the motor pool, you're turning wrenches, you're fixing things. Mm. The main thing would be the, the mentors I had and the, and the leadership that I had coming up. Even if, even if we start back from my uh, from my recruiter, you go in, you do what you have to do, you you fight for the hard jobs, and you make the best of what, what they give you. So as someone, going back to your four other siblings, as someone that, that really valued that opportunity to be a mentor and to help coach and, and, and advise others to now your military career where you're, you're attributing a lot of your early success to great leaders, great mentors, I'm sure you're also an opportunity to mentor others while you're in, even that, that first phase of your, your military career. Normally, uh, mentor soldiers, you, you have to. That's in, that's in a lot of the crews we do. My first time, I get to mentor people up front when I became a drill sergeant. You're taking civilians right off the road and turn them to soldiers, and they come from all walks of life. You're the first impression they see of the military. So what you do and, and how you act and everything goes a long way. To this day, most of my guys, I might not remember them, but they remember me. And they're all high-ranking, uh, either high-ranking officers or high-ranking uh, NCOs, and that's 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 your that's my 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 feel good to it. That knowing that you help somebody get where they have where they want to be, and they tell you, but they don't tell you then, but they tell you now. You just sit there. I, I didn't I didn't know. I was just 
make sure I set a good example for you. That's such a great point. I remember Staff Sergeant Lemke was our drill instructor in the Air Force back in the summer of 1994 at Lackland Air Force Base in very hot San Antonio. But you make a great point there. I mean, that first leader or two that folks knew, these recruits knew to the Army, connect with, get trained with, get chewed out by, get get mentored by, they, it is such a deep impact that they have on their formative years, at least in the military. And so you, you took, clearly you took that role very seriously, and, and that helped fuel your success uh, and, and probably how well you did your job, huh? It, it definitely played a part because uh, I, I still keep in contact with a lot of those people today. For example, my, uh, my very first company commander, I was her first guide arm bearer with the person holding the flag. Oh, yeah. She's my first uh, company commander. And she's a full-board colonel. They, her family know me as the driver. I was her driver in Iraq. Uh, saved her from a couple IEDs or whatever. To this day, uh, she had to be in at least over 20 years because she was our in the Army five years when I, when I met her. I'm, I'm, it's one of the few that she keeps in contact over the years. If I have issues, I have questions, I, I call her. But I think she's, I think she's up for one star. She's about to make one star general. So, hey, the value of an outstanding network, whether you're in the military or if you're in the private sector, I mean that, that's a consistent truth. Okay, is there as we talk more about your career success in the military? You know, your fast rise, your uh, achieving, you know to be a, a chief warrant officer, anything else that really, those accomplishments that fueled that, anything else that really stands out to you? Probably the main one that stands out to me is the fact that I was able to finish college while in the military or active duty. Uh, a lot of people say it's hard. Where we in the military, they give you, you go to school for free. I tell, I tell all my soldiers all the time, no reason you should got the military with, with a minimum of a social degree, if that, a, a, a social or a bachelor, because it's free. So when you get out, you can use your GI Bill for something else, like right. a PhD or other certifications. So I was able to finish that while I was in Korea in 2016, finished my master's degree. And now uh, I'm hoping to start a, a doctorate next year. So let's shift gears a little bit here. You've already mentioned one or two leaders that either you worked for or worked with. What's one person, one, one either manager you worked with, uh, a leader you worked with or, or you worked for, that really stands out in terms of that made you better, that, that you, you really wanted to be like or get better at certain, certain attributes that they had? Who, st- who really sticks out? She, she was my first sergeant. Now she's the sergeant major of the whole, uh, what we call Ordnance Corps up in Fort Lee, Virginia. Her name is uh, Petra Cassandra. And uh, she was what we call the super NCO, like NCO of the year, never made a mistake. Always knew what was going on, knew every soldier in the unit name. She didn't want to convince me to go drill sergeant because my, my goal was I, I don't want to be a drill sergeant. I just want to keep, I wanted to keep deploying until, until I couldn't no more. She didn't want to force me to be a drill sergeant because she said I had the talent to uh, train people, lead people good and motivate people and keeping people's spirits up. That's one who everybody in the unit wanted to be like because she was always by the book. Off work, on work, you would never catch her, uh, never catch her slipping. <laughs> <laughs> Man, those people, they're so good. The folks that are always on, huh? All right, so let's, let's talk about, before we talk transition, I want to make sure that me and our audience are familiar with your timeline. So did you wrap up serving as a drill instructor in 2012 and then 
the remainder of your time was was back you know logistics and transportation and and fleet maintenance and, and whatnot T tell us about that if you would august 15 2012 when i uh painted on uh one officer rank and then from there i came to fort bragg after doing airborne school came to fort bragg uh, my first job was a fleet manager for a uh, for a brigade where um not a brigade but a battalion where you manage for infantry guys infantry infantry units are good because at the end of the day they're going to walk so it's, the fleet is not as robust as it is most units. While you're doing it, you might be a fleet manager, but I'm also managing my own budget. I'm also managing my own personnel. I'm also managing uh, any other program like safety, environmental. So it's, as a warrant officer, you get everything in one, where if you're an O-grade officer, you only got to worry about that one, one topic they give you. If you're an S-4 officer, you worry about budget. If you're an intel officer, you worry about intel. But for a warrant, you get, you get all of it because they figure your SEO background and the, the phrase they say is chief knows everything. <laughs> so really well-rounded, it sounds like, uh, chief warrant officers have to be. Yes, you have to be. It also seems to me that a chief warrant officer has to be able to, to go in and understand a situation, understand the data, understand the scope, understand what's going on. And then in very the simplest terms possible, the, or in the mo probably the most succinct terms possible, have to translate that to inform the O-level, the, the, the traditional commissioned officers. Is that, is that accurate? That makes sense, yes. So you've got a ton of, Ted, a ton of experience, that especially just in, in our, uh, I love supply chain. That's what we talk about all the time. And supply chains don't happen. You know, if fleets stop, if trucks, trains, ships, you name it. Any of that stuff stops. Global supply chain stop. And as it was put in the last few weeks with an a guest on our show, no product, no program. Uh, yeah. And that was, you know, and, and that's, that's so true. So to keep all this, you know, these fleets moving, it takes really sharp people that uh, whether it's at the detailed level or if it's at the operation or enterprise level, right? All points in between. So it, it would strike me to believe that you've got a ton of opportunity. If is that aspect of your skill set, what you're looking to apply, and the types of positions you're looking to, to uh, transition into uh, as you move into the private sector? That's very accurate because being in the military, being logistics, you work. Uh, the mission don't move or finish without you. For example, my my last uh, job was in a uh, special operations unit where. We control 30 countries in, in Southeast, Southeast Asia. Uh, my mission was to make sure the fleets over there was good, to make sure the teams get the uh, equipment they need, and while, while at the same time managing the whole program back here. Well, another example is I'm, I'm the safety officer for all 30 countries. So if anything happens in one of those countries, I'm the one that got to fill the report out. I'm the one that had to set it up to big army and then have to do the investigation. Mm. So I like being, I like chain management and, and logistics because your your hands in everything. Yeah. So you, you don't really get enough out of the picture. You, you're not. It's more like having a MBA, a BA rather than a BS. So I, I like that part, and I want to use all that in the uh, civilian world, where I'm not just sitting in a uh, in a cubicle and only got one thing to focus on. Yep. You get kind of bored out of a while. So it seems like to me that not only do you enjoy training and managing and mentoring the people side of the business but also here you talk a lot about you know kind of the process the methodology the data 
And then, which is, of course, really important these days, any business, certainly in supply chain, but then taking deeper dives and investigating, getting the root calls and getting to the facts so that there's an accurate understanding of what actually is or was or will be taking place. That can be mailed in oftentimes by a lot of folks industry. So it sounds like you've got quite a, a combination of, of not only skill sets, but stuff that you really love to do. It's good seeing how everything starts from point A to point Z and everything it takes to do it. A lot of people don't don't know, okay, what makes this this uh, truck move, what makes it where what makes it uh, a successful mission for like for Amazon, for example. We just know I get a box on my I order something online, it's here in two days, sometimes same day. I have no clue what the process that just happened makes sure it get here as promised. That's the kind of stuff I like I like to know. It's the inner workings of any program, any organization. Yeah, you appreciate it more. Agreed. And as consumers, and I'm I'm including myself, folks that take things for granted. I mean, it is it really is amazing. However, what we've seen, and you may have seen it too, Ted, in recent months, especially in this in this pandemic environment, it seems like one of the silver linings is that folks are getting a whole new, whether they like it or not, a whole new appreciation of how global supply chains work and why they work. And that's why we are able to enjoy these things same day or next day or two days, whatever. Okay, so let's talk transition for a minute. What are some of your early observations when it comes? I know you've, you know, officially you've only been at it for three weeks or so, but what's some early observations related to your, your transition uh, that you can share with us? For us, for military, they give you two years to transition out. So two years from the day you, that you decide you want to retire at, at your at approval is stuff. The first thing you start stressing about is where do I fit in? How do I translate what I'm doing to the civilian world? And then, uh, you have, if, especially been since you was young and didn't work before you joined the military, how, how do I do a job interview or, or what do I not tell people? What do I tell people? So it's it, it start getting anxiety start building up two years from that you figured out because like, oh man, it's gonna be over. And as the time get closer, the more anxious you become. So things I, I saw early is, okay, I don't even know how to write a resume. <laughs> I didn't know what LinkedIn was two years ago. Things of that nature, who uh, who to talk to, where can I go talk to a CEO where in the military, you have no business talking to a general unless you're in trouble. So there's, there's a lot of things early that if I if I, I wish I knew maybe five, six years ago, where they, they prep you for a civilian world, or at least keep it real close. Yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, but for all the good, you know, when I joined the Air Force, I was I turned 18 in, in boot camp, you know, so I was really young. But I know for a fact, looking back now, that all the structure that the military provided me, and, I, and, and mine was in two stints, it was, it was extremely helpful, and it helped me grow up at a very early age. And so it's a great thing. However, you know, here, in, you know, I didn't think about kind of the, um, when you compare and contrast your ability to talk with CEOs or higher level folks in the private sector, that is, you know, that's your network and, and it's great and that's, is, it can be encouraged and, and these folks are more accessible now than ever before versus the military where jumping in order to talk with a general or someone at a higher end of the totem pole, that is very difficult and, and to your point, it can be frowned upon, right? Yes, yes. It's not allowed. You have you have, you have a good reason to be talking to anybody with a star on their collar. 
it's kind of where that structure kind of holds us back a little bit. Uh, so you, it's double-edged sword. So you shared a few early observations, and clearly there is anxiety for any, even the most, the person that's got it together. <laughs> you know, if there are folks that, that really can can have all the answers as they come out of the military and, and be 100% fully prepared to go into private sector, it's not many people like that. So there's naturally there's, there's some anxiety. And maybe it's too early on, I don't know, but do you think it's going to be more challenging or less challenging in terms of your transition based on what you heard about? It's more challenging now only because of COVID. That's the, I honestly believe it went for COVID. I, I've been, I, I would have been set up for success by now. But with COVID, COVID it's very challenging because the country came to a halt by the hiring freeze besides the companies that, that are still working, your Walmarts, your Home Depots, your Amazons, all those e-commerce e- e- companies, they're still working. But if you're a person that only had one set skill, for example, if you were, say, uh, a cook in the military, a lot of restaurants were shut down. So, yeah. But that's all you knew versus you was a, a, a military police in the military. The police did, did not stop hiring. So right. It, 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 got, it got kind of worse. Once March came and then this, we took COVID serious, it did got very, very uh, hard to find uh to even just get conversation with people that's kind of where you are today you're you're putting irons in the fire trying to target both from a company standpoint and from a, a type of role standpoint and geographic and, and we'll touch more on those but what have you heard from other veterans i mean what's a couple of things that you hear whether it's advice or experiences what are you hearing from from folks that either have already transitioned or folks that are transitioning with you so the main thing, I, I talked to a lot of people that retired before me. Uh, a lot of people tell me, just make sure you know what you want. Slow down. I'm a very aggressive person when it comes. I, I'm not a procrastinator. So I like, I like to have a plan. I don't wait for it to just happen. So you say, just slow down. It'll, it'll come to you. You'll be okay. I'm like, that's not telling me nothing. A lot of them telling me to uh, just make sure that your first job won't be what you want. Tell me to network. Start talking to people. Uh, start putting your name out there. Start build, build your brand. It's what I get a lot. Build your brand. Make sure you know what you have to bring to the table, and you can you can talk about that real good. And and then it just say um, the main thing is just the waiting game. Yeah, like what you what you want may not happen, but it, you will get to it. A second ago, we talked about kind of some of the things on your short list in terms of what you'd like to do and some of the companies you'd like to do it for, and geographically geographically where you want to be. You know, back when I was in basic, and I, I would assume they still have it. You could fill out a dream list of where you you know you wanted to be based, and funny enough, uh, Ted, get this: as a as an eighteen year old that I should have joined the Air Force to see the world, I got stationed at four at Shaw Air Force Base in Sumter, South Carolina. I was from Aiken, South Carolina. I was an hour and twenty minutes from home. How crazy is that? So, but anyway, so back to that dream list, dream sheet comparison, whatever we called it. When you think about what you want to do, who you want to do it for, or what company will be a part of, and where you want to do it. Share share that with us. I have a, a huge list uh, for a place I want to be at. Unlike you, I, I, I never got a chance to be stationed close to home. <laughs> I tried to get Fort McPherson when it was open before Tyler Perry Studios, and yep. I already would send me everywhere else except back to Georgia. I never got stationed in Georgia. <laughs> but if I can work for companies that, that I, I, I respect, it'll be like the FedEx, UPS, because they're all global. Walmart is global. I, when I was stationed in Germany, there was a Walmart in Germany in, back in 2006. 
Right. Wow. And it was called Walmart. It, it wasn't no German name. It was like Walmart. Like, wow. <laughs> I went to Dominican Republic. It's a Walmart there. I'm like, okay, this is a this is a global thing going on. Amazon's another one because if it's global, that means it's, it's room for me to see the world. I'm a person that love, loves to travel. FedEx, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think who I'm forgetting. Coca-Cola, Delta, because they're from they're, they're from Georgia. Like growing up in Atlanta, yep. you learn the history of Coca-Cola. You had to. It was it's in Georgia history. You had to you had to know that it was started right there in Atlanta. You yep. just had to. You like these global companies because of, of their their global transportation and logistics footprint is one of the reasons, right? That and because uh, it, it's what I do now. Now uh, I'm working with uh, different uh, interagencies that work global. Uh, you're not just talking to the, the Department of Transportation for the state. You're talking to the, the guy that lets you get stuff out of country. Right. Then you got to go to that country and talk to the ambassador or the chief of station to get stuff into his country. So yep. the experience. And I also like come because they even though they do a, they so global and world known, they do a lot of little programs for whatever community they're in. A lot of little little small uh charities that they give that you have never heard of unless you dig deep into their company. Yep. So that's with them making everything like the um, for example with Amazon with the CEO of Amazon, he's given so much back during this COVID. But he's made a lot, but you, he, no, nobody focuses on what he's made. They focus on what he's given back and wishes. Right. That, that's amazing because a lot of people have to do that. We've kind of laid out some of the organizations that really appeal to you that you also think highly of and would love to be a part of. Now let's shift over and tell us about, uh, I think there's a couple of roles in particular that you're really targeting. Also talk about the geographic area that ideally, if you could be there, that you'd like to be in, in, in the private sector. One would be would be back home in Atlanta because it's uh it's one of the same when I left Atlanta. Atlanta is now the uh, logistic capital of the world. That was not the case when I left home, and it is, it's so many opportunities there. Yeah. Another place I would like to be is DC because it's it's another place that's uh very job savvy, but uh you get to meet a lot of people. And then uh my dream place, of course, would be San Antonio, Texas. Never been to San Antonio. I've never been there. But it's close to South America, and I want to eventually go live in South America one day. <laughs> okay. I didn't I didn't gather that from some of our earlier conversations. All right, yeah. so San Antonio is a, is a really cool city. It is having even grown up in South Carolina and now living in Georgia, how hot I'm used to our summers being. Man, <laughs> San Antonio blows that away. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> but a, a gorgeous city. Texas is hot. Uh, station in Oklahoma. Texas, it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, there's so much going on, you know, in Texas, whether it's it's Dallas, that that the Dallas market, DFW market is a ton going on from logistics and, and just a general general business standpoint. Austin, Houston, uh, I'm not as familiar with the San Antonio industry side, but a ton of stuff going on, especially along the lines of your skill sets and your experience and your expertise. So who knows? So if you're listening, Atlanta, DC or San Antonio, or kind of the, the, the dream dream sheet for uh, Ted here. We've already talked about some of the companies. And then finally, let's talk about specifically a couple of the roles that you're targeting, Ted. So most like your operation managers, they have their hands in everything. Uh, logistic, logistic specialists or logistic analysts. I'm still trying to figure out what's different because in my world, logistics is logistics. You, you're, you're doing, you're planning from A to B and you're figuring out all the gaps and, and everything is going to need to get done. So it's uh, 
I'm still trying to figure out what's different between a, a, a logistic analyst and a logistic specialist. So I would just round it to a logistic manager. And then if I have, uh, if I can say worst case scenario, because I've been dealing with fleets and equipment, mm-hmm. a fleet maintenance manager uh, for a large company would be something great. I hope that, and, and I know that the pandemic environment has been so challenging and an obstacle for for so many candidates and, and employing organizations as well. But gosh, given your skill sets and given your expertise and your experiences, and, and you know, one thing we didn't even touch on, you know, because you're reflecting on your time in Iraq uh, and, and what, five tours there, is that right? Yes. To be able to adapt and, 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 and of course, the military that, you know, they train you how to how to uh, adapt, improvise, but it's it's a whole different level to go over there, adapt with the, all the conditions, do it five times, make an impact. Also, have to bridge the gap, you know, because you were, uh, if I heard you correctly, you were training Iraqi soldiers, so yes. you had those communication gaps, those those cultural you know differences and stuff. You got to bridge all that in order to get stuff done, and and to be sent back to do it time and time again, um, and and just to keep on driving regardless of the conditions. I mean, that that there's so much of what that is that is so relevant to change management in the private sector, especially when it comes to supply chain. I mean, I'll be interested to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of your your journey as you transition and and seeing that first stop you land at, Ted. Yeah, me too. Because like, like you said, a lot of things the military teach us is be flexible. Yes. Be flexible, be adaptable. So... I know a lot of people look at the military as what they see on TV. Uh, me working around, I call them Chuck Norris's. Me working around a, a bunch of Chuck Norris's type A personality. All they know is they need this and you're supposed to get it for me. And you got to deal with it. Yeah. So try to clear that stigma of, of how people see soldiers uh, or just military people, uh, especially, you know, some of my, my brother Marines and stuff. Everyone's not like that, but we That's are right. very flexible and we, 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 change with that with the environment, constantly change with the environment. Really well put. Hey, on that note, because you, you mentioned what folks see on TV, and, and I know that this movie has plenty of, well, I've heard it has plenty of military flaws. I, I, I saw a few of them last night, but A Few Good Men, hadn't seen it in a long time, and I watched it last night. Have you, have you seen that in a while? That's the one with Cuba Gunner Jr.? No, that's the one with Tom Cruise is a oh. naval oh. Oh. Uh, defense attorney. I honestly have never been on that side of the military when it comes to courtroom and, and, right. and, and, and court martial. But the personalities, is, when it comes to O-grades, I've been in a room where they are ruthless to each other. But that's that's <laughs> different because they, they, that's their, their competition. Right. O-grade, I'm, like, I'm so glad I'm not a normal commission officer because it's too political. It's right. Just, oh, my goodness. Y'all are ruthless to each other. <laughs> <laughs> But you're professional all the time. But right. The movie is uh, spot on uh, when it comes to the, the politics on how they interact. But with the, the links that links we go to just that friendly competition. Because in the, the day, no matter who wins, who loses, they both friends. Uh, at the end of the day, it just it's 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 it's, it's, it's personal. It's uh, business, never personal. Well, uh, good stuff there. Well, that scene, uh, so it's that, that infamous scene where Jack Nicholson is the full-board Marine colonel, and he's being uh, questioned by, you know, the young, early-term naval officer, Tom Cruise, an experienced naval officer with one ribbon. It's such a great, uh, that it, 
Jack Nicholson plays like a perfect full board <laughs> Marine Colonel, you know, it's just like grizzly and it's going to make stuff happen and you can't handle the truth. But anyway, um, good stuff here today. We've been talking with Ted Turner who has just recently, uh, he retired June 1st, 2020. Congratulations again. He officially separates and gets that, that blue card he was talking about on the 1st of September, 2020. Hey, Ted, real quick, as we wrap up, where can folks connect with you to learn more, whether it's talk about opportunities or just pick your brain and, and you know, dive into some of your thought leadership you've been sharing? The best way to reach me is through LinkedIn. Or through my email, which is theodore.t.turner at gmail.com. And I'm always monitoring both. I don't have the Facebook or anything like that. so That's <laughs> okay. It's probably you're better off, maybe. Better off. Well, Ted, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the service to your country over the, you know, the last 20 years. I wish you all the best in this transition. We look forward to helping out however we can. I, I love the last you know, hour or so we've spent with you. I bet our audience has enjoyed it as well. So on that note, big thanks to Ted Turner. Best of luck on the mission. So to our audience, on behalf of the entire team here at Veteran Voices, hope you have enjoyed uh, this episode. We wish you nothing but the best. Hey, keep in mind, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here. Thanks, everybody.